Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's the Wednesday episode of Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Courtney Estoffi, and Laura Johnston. Did any of you see what Axios did to that reporter in Florida? The, 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 the reporter responded to a press release from Ron DeSantis's office saying, you know, this is propaganda, not a press release, just a private communication with the spokesperson, the way any reporter who engages with any agency does. There's a bit of a rapport there. And the spokesperson put it on Twitter, brought all sorts of, of stuff toward that reporter. And then Axios fired the guy. Mm -hmm. They fired the guy. It's unbelievable that you would not stand behind the reporter. I, I, I mean, the, the Esquire did a huge takedown of, of, of Axios for this, just saying that they are, this is one terrible place to be. I just cannot believe that. I mean, I mean, look, I lead a newsroom. You stand behind your folks, especially when they're under attack like that. Ron DeSantis wants to shut down the media. He's got all sorts of stuff going on down there and they cave in, in this, I just, it was yeah, a I mean, shock. What's the chances that it actually was propaganda? Pretty high, right? Look, anybody that's been a reporter knows there's give and take with sources. That wasn't a public condemnation. It was the guy going back saying, what are you sending this to me for? This is crap. I did that all the time as a reporter. Mm -hmm. I'm betting that anybody who is a reporter has talked trash with sources. It's part of the the game i but had to get fired i mean it just yeah. and this guy is is a renowned reporter he's not you know i think i think he's a pulitzer winner i mean it's just i i just cannot understand that look the media is under assault and if we don't stand for the first amendment you don't stand up it's all going to be washed away and and axios did not do what it should have done which was to stand in and and back up the reporter. Ugly stuff, but that's not what we're here to talk about. So how hard will Republicans in the Ohio legislature fight an effort by Democrats to once and for all kill HB6, the bill forged in the biggest bribery scheme in state history? Lisa, we've talked about the ridiculousness of having this law, elements of this law, still on the books. It just shouldn't be anything that is this stinky should not be in the code. What's going to happen? I think there's just a slight whiff of bipartisanship here. But uh, two Democrats, uh, uh, Sean Brennan of Parma and Casey Weinstein of Hudson, say they're planning to introduce new legislation to repeal that $700 million subsidy in House Bill 6 that bails out two 1950s-era coal plants in Cheshire, Ohio, and Madison, Indiana. These are operated by the Ohio Valley Electric Corporation, or OVEC. The legislation also plans to seek a refund 
refund of the $158 million already paid to these subsidies by customers. So interestingly enough, their co-sponsor is Derek Marin, the Republican of Monclovia and would-be House Speaker until he got voted out. Uh, he says, I'm all for getting rid of the subsidies. He did vote for House Bill 6 in 2019, but not because of the subsidies. He said it was only because it removed renewable energy and efficiency programs. But hey, we can take what we get. So uh, American Electric Power, AEP, owns 43% of the coal operation. And they actually first opposed House Bill 6 until the coal subsidy amendment was added. And they're defending that subsidy. Uh, Scott Blake with AEP says OVIC plants offer security from rising natural gas prices and when wind and solar are unavailable. I I get that there are people that are going to argue on the merits of what remains of this law. Matt Huffman, the Senate president, likes that it rolled back the green energy standards too. But there's a principle here. There's an integrity issue. We have a bill, a law in Ohio on the books that we know First Energy paid $60 million in bribes to get done. The Speaker of the House has been convicted of masterminding this horrible scheme. Just for the sake of integrity, get rid of it. If you want to pass new legislation to pick up the threads that you still want, okay, fine. Do that, debate it, put it in committees and pass it. But it's the whole idea that we have a law on the books that stinks. But let's see how this moves through the House. I mean, I, I'm a little bit hopeful here. We'll have to see, you know, if other Republicans sign on to this. It hasn't been introduced yet, so it should be coming in, in you know, in the coming weeks. So we'll have to see who jumps on ship. Well, I do think there is part of the spotlight issue here. If you know you're in the spotlight for protecting the stinky bill, that could attach to you in a bad way. So I salute the Democrats for trying to do it. And we've given Derek Marin hell on this podcast, but he's on the right side of this one. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is an ill-conceived proposal to raise speed limits on Ohio's two-lane roads from 55 to 60 miles per hour already dead? Courtney, we talked about how this came out of nowhere, was based on no research, and probably imperiled a whole lot of drivers. How might it be dead already? Yeah, Governor Mike DeWine is not on board with this proposal from the Senate. He he was speaking to reporters yesterday. He said he adamantly opposes this change from 55 to 60 on largely rural highways. And, you know, a DeWine veto would very likely end this initiative if it gets to that point, right? Um, you know, the, the, the state legislature could override a veto, um, with a supermajority of lawmakers, but the governor quashing it kind of, you know, put, put puts it in the crosshairs. You know, DeWine told us that every expert that you talk to can tell you that data shows that if you increase the speed limit, even by only five miles an hour, there's going to be folks who die. And, and, and DeWine said, quote, it's not worth the sacrifice of our loved ones on the highway. The, the, this is one of the weirdest cases of legislation you see. The, the woman that proposed it said, hey, I, I, I just want to start the conversation. That's not what you do by proposing legislation. You do those conversations before. You do the research before. If there are people in the state that have certain roadways they think should be 60, 
then maybe the legislature should create a system by which townships and cities and others can apply to have their road raised to 60 and then provide the science to show that it wouldn't increase danger. But just a unilateral <laughs> raising of the speed limit. And we talked about it last week. This was Looney Tunes. And I, I haven't talked to anybody yet who says, yeah, that's a good idea. Everybody has said, yikes, which is pretty much the way Mike DeWine described it. <laughs> Yeah, and, and and that mechanism there, where where individual municipalities could maybe lobby for an increase on certain roads based on specific con- conditions, not just this blanket increase across the state, that was built into the Senate proposal to some degree. It, you know, under this proposal. It, it, Cities, townships would have been able to ask ODOT to do an engineering study, see if it's safe, and bump speed limits from 60 to 65 on highways that are already at 60. So they're already kind of playing at that concept. You know, we'll have to see where it goes from here with the wine coming out so strongly against it yesterday. The House has already passed a version of the state transportation budget. So if the Senate does want to pursue this, even knowing where the governor stands, it, it, it's still going to have to reconcile with the house what this final proposal would look like before they send it to dewine's i was glad to hear the governor speak so emphatically this this was creating a frightening reckless situation it's another example of how the supermajority in the legislature has caused it to pretty much lose its mind you're listening to today in ohio how is cleveland now on the international map for quantum computing and laura in 30 words or less please explain to our listeners what quantum computing is Can I use shiny as one of my words? (laughs) Because Julie Washington used it to describe this three foot by five foot cylinder that is in the Lerner Research Institute at Cleveland Clinic. And it's going to basically process information a whole lot faster than regular computing. So it doesn't use these ones and zeros that are in conventional computer. It can crunch larger amounts of data at these incredibly high speeds because it can doesn't have to work sequentially. It can crunch them data in parallel and use both ones and zeros at the same time. Researchers at Google said a quantum computer could run a computation in 200 seconds that would take the world's largest super regular computers 10,000 years to compete. I really can't even comprehend how fast this is, but a researcher on clinics campus, anyone can use this by communicating with the quantum computer with their conventional computer that'll send messages to this super high speed computer, and then it'll send the information back once it's already calculated. And what makes this one at the clinic unique? It's the first one ever devoted just to healthcare and the first one completely privately owned. It's a partnership with IBM. And is the clinic talking about ways that this might make them better at treating people? Well, a lot of it is the research. So I don't know that, you know, you're going to get a blood test and it's going to be run through this quantum computer, but it's the point is to advance discoveries in medicine and healthcare to identify new medicines and treatments more quickly. They want to create jobs in technology because this is so unique. So I think, you know, we talked a while back, I think it was Case Western Reserve was doing was using AI to find a drug that could treat, I don't remember the specific disease, but they basically combed through existing research and said, identified things that, you know, drugs that already existed that could be used for a new disease. Maybe we're talking about this kind of thing because it'll be able to go through that data so much faster. 
Is there any chance they're going to use it for scheduling so it doesn't take three months to get an appointment with your doctor? I don't think this is going to uh, add <laughs> doctors to the clinic or make it any easier to actually get in to be seen. Unless you just want to go see the, the shiny cylinder quantum computer. I mean, I, I haven't been in this Learner Research Institute, but from the photos, it, it really looks like it's just out there in the open. Like, it's not like in some back room with, you know, in a server farm. It was like in a glass case. I, I thought when I first heard about it that it would certainly be in the building that says IBM over by Opportunity Carter and Cedar because that building is abandoned. There's never any vehicles there, uh, but it's not. It's in it's in the learner area. And it's so. really small, right? You'd think a quantum computer, like it would be bigger, but this is it's not that big. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Yesterday, we talked about how the awful winter that was predicted didn't materialize. Lisa, whatever happened to that triple-demic that health officials had warned us would make winter so awful in Northeast Ohio? Well, it seems like that triple-demic of RSV, COVID-19, and flu just kind of fizzled. Health experts feared that the three of them converging at the same time would be serious, but we still had an active season for all three diseases, regardless. So with RSV, it was an early and aggressive onset and it overran hospitals uh, back before Christmas. But they think that the interaction with COVID may be a factor in, in the, the more severe season for RSV, or it could be a loss of immunity f- due to t- social distancing. Now, COVID, COVID's been kind of persistent pretty much. There was a spike in December, but it was lower in January and February. And we had a weekly peak of 17 1,891 cases just before Christmas, but it's been below 10,000 a week since mid-January. As for the flu, um, the deaths were higher than during the pandemic. We had 16 Cuyahoga County deaths to date, but that's below pre-pandemic levels. The flu season started and peaked early, but this hit kids. There were a lot of kids hospitalized for flu this year. Earlier in the school year, it seemed like RSV and the flu were just walloping classrooms. Anybody, any parent was talking about it. Laura and and, uh, Layla talked about it a good bit. But but we haven't talked about that probably since Christmas, right? Mm-hmm. So it so it really did just kind of dissolve away. Laura, you haven't been hearing anything in the schools, have you? No, I think the fall was, you know, we talked a lot about RSV and how it was raging. And there were a lot of kids that were, had, you know, sinus issues, but weren't, weren't testing positive for COVID. But you're right. It kind of just petered out. So the old Farmer's Almanac got it wrong. The <laughs> medical profession got it wrong. I was, I, I, it's I, difficult I, to predict the future, I think. I, I hesitate to ask, what are our prognostications for the Guardian season? Because we'll be held to that later. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Anybody who drives around Greater Cleveland knows that the railroads don't take care of their properties. The bridges are rusted out. They just look like hell. How long has Cleveland been fighting with the railroad companies to get information and action that would serve city residents? Courtney, you wrote this story. 
Yeah, there was a big hearing among Cleveland City Council yesterday talking about rail safety in the city. This was a response to what happened in East Palestine. You know, on the concerns, this is a major populated area. We got rail lines cutting through the city alongside homes, and and there's just lots of concerns there. But what really kind of came to the fore during yesterday's hearing is just how dang frustrated city council and city leaders are with the railroads. You know, one line from Councilman Mike Palenzik, he's the longest serving member on council. He's been there since the 70s. And he said he's been fighting with the railroad since he started, you know. So and and other council members came out with these with these these horror stories in their neighborhoods around the city, just talking about the struggles of of crumbling, scary railroad overpasses and bridges and, and other issues on, on railroad properties throughout the city. And and what they described is is just like little action, little response, dragging of feet, and, and an attitude essentially from the railroads that they're, they're not, it's not really a priority for them essentially to, to hop to when the city has concerns about how they're treating their property. So a lot of this, it seemed based on yesterday's conversation stems from the fact that a lot of local rail safety regulations since the federal law passed in the seventies, which gave control and regulation of railroads to the federal government it, it just seems that there's this attitude since then that the railroads say, well, you can't really touch us with your regulation, so we'll do what we want. But the city says that it, it does still have the right to to enforce, you know, code violations and things. Councilman Mike Palentic yesterday called on the city to really start going hard at the railroads and housing court, cite them for overgrown grass along the tracks, cite them for those crumbling bridges. But, you know, in the meantime, that's a tough uphill battle. You know, we were told the, the railroads just don't really respond or, or care was the picture that they painted. Well, my impression is that you really don't have the, the hammer. You could bring them into municipal court, but they're never going to pay the fines. They're not going to listen. Really, if you think about it, they are the only landowner in a municipality that doesn't get the rules enforced on them. And the the result is the only time their bridges see paint is from the graffiti artists. It's, it's, it, 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 they, they look like hell holes. I mean, when you drive around, it's that broken windows theory too. When, when they look that bad, what does it do to the rest of the neighborhood? And the federal government in 1970 passed that far reaching law that really stops cities in any way from regulating them. I'm hoping that this kind of noise, like your story will persuade the legislators that are looking at tightening restrictions for railroads to to ease up and let the cities have some authority to get these things cleaned up. It's not just the danger. I mean, if the bridges are crumbling, that's a serious danger. One of the council people said that they, they worry there's going to be a derailment in their neighborhood, but they also look terrible. Yeah, it, it, it's both an issue here, right? So this can range anywhere from Private property owners have to trim their grass and make sure that they're following the city rules there. But we got this example from last summer where the city reached out to CSX and said, hey, please, or, or perhaps Norfolk Southern, I forget, please cut your grass at this crossing. It's, it's. I, I assume there were issues with lines of sight and things at an intersection on the east side. And 
four months of feet dragging before really anything happened from the railroads. By then, summer's over, right? So, but 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 then you get to the more serious issues here. And you know, Councilwoman Jenny Spencer was telling me about a fight she had on the west side with the bridge over Lake Avenue behind uh, Don's Lighthouse there, and and. She, you know, concrete crumbling, lodging repeated complaints to the railroad operators. And what was their final response? Finally, when it looked like the city was going to attempt to bring down whatever hammer it could, she told me they put up some some plywood <laughs> over the crumbling concrete. Yeah. It, they feel disrespected. The, these are big properties in the city and the property owners are, aren't taking care of them. They it's say. time to rewrite the railroad law. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How much money did Ohio account for in the value of goods exported out of the United States last year? Laura, we stood in well. $60 billion just from Ohio, and exports out of the U.S. grew faster than imports in 2022. And Ohio's pretty much online with the rest of the nation in the largest exports in the country. We're talking steel, car parts, animal field. The number one in Ohio is boilers, machinery, and mechanical appliances with a total revenue of $8.7 billion last year. Number two is vehicles that aren't railway or tramway railing stock and parts and accessories. That's $8.3 billion. And number three, aircraft, spacecraft, or parts of with $4.6 billion. So go, go Ohio. Yeah, that's big numbers, and and that's still coming during the pandemic period. So, uh, stronger stronger numbers in Ohio in employment and in exports than had been expected. You're listening to today in Ohio. It has been a month since a metal recycling plant exploded down near Oakwood and Walton Hills. Do we know any more about what caused the explosion or whether people are in danger from any contaminants, Lisa? Yeah, they are still trying to clean up from that February 20th explosion and fire at the I. Schumann & Company metal fabrication plant in Oakwood. It killed employee Steve Mullins and injured 13 others. So they said that they haven't even gotten inside the building, the independent contractor that they hired is still working on the outside, so they haven't cleaned up the inside yet. But there's uh, a woman, Ivanka Hall, who leads both the Northeast Ohio Black Health Coalition and CLASH, the Cleveland-led Advocates for Safe Housing. She's concerned about lead exposure. She says that the Ohio EPA hasn't investigated the health effects enough, and they didn't warn residents about the popular, you know, the possible dangers. She said that their group collected two soil samples in early Early March from the south side of Alexander Road, which had elevated levels of lead, 3,150 parts per million and 1,650 parts per million. The EPA threshold for children's areas is 400 parts per million. So the Ohio EPA spokesman James Lee says they are taking it seriously. They've tested a nearby creek and air monitoring is ongoing in the area. And he said, so far, there's been no reason for concern or any health effects that they've identified. Um, they said the fire was not in a storage area where they store lead and cadmium. So, um, but they do know that they emit lead. I mean, I Schumann lead is 11% of their admissions, and it is responsible for them having an EPA risk score, but they're still about average. But the problem here is that the, the testing that uh, Clash and, and this other group did didn't have a baseline. So they didn't know what was going on before they tested, before the accident. I was, 
I was kicking myself over the weekend because the Washington Post came in and did a story on this in our backyard that was was alarmist, except reading between the lines, maybe not so. The, the, the story was about a month later, the, the, there's still this big threat and the EPA is moving slowly and compared to East Palestine, they're not doing anything here. But nowhere in the story did it say there was any indication that there was lead as a result of this. And as our story makes clear, uh, there is yet to be any indication. It is odd that there wasn't testing done anywhere where kids play in that vicinity in the past mm-hmm. month. Uh, and I'm kind of surprised that the EPA isn't insisting on that more. The company is saying, that, like you said, that the lead wasn't in the area that had the explosion. So they don't think it's there. Uh, so this isn't like East Palestine and East Palestine <laughs> trains derailed, dumped all sorts of toxic stuff into the earth and into the waterways. There was, it wasn't a matter of if it was a matter of how much and how much damage it did. This is still a matter of if was there any lead that was spread by this and the EPA should get it in gear to figure it out. Well, and I I think that's ongoing. I mean, the cleanup's ongoing. They're they're still monitoring the issue there. But in this Washington Post story on Sunday, Hall said that the lack of urgency is due to racial equity issues versus East Palestine, which is like 94% white and 1% black, whereas Oakwood Village is 66% black. But as our story pointed out, others that are surrounded this area. Bedford is 52% black, but Walton Hills and Northfield to the west and south of the plant are 85 and 77% white, respectively. So a racial equity issue might be difficult to claim at this point. Yeah, I, I I had the same feeling when I read the story. It's That's a tough one to make. I mean, look, think about East Palestine. J.D. Vance is arguing they were ignored because they're mostly white. And in this case, they're saying they got all the attention because they're mostly white. I, I don't know that the racial element is here. I, I But for the safety of the children, th- there should be testing. It should be done fairly quickly. It doesn't. And you said there's no baseline. You're right. But it, if they test where the kids are and they find lead in amounts that are unsafe, then they could do something about it. Not knowing a month later seems pretty irresponsible. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What is the Tri-C Foundation doing with a $2 million grant from KeyBank's foundation that was announced this week? Courtney. Yeah, jobs, jobs, jobs is the focus of this money. This $2 million gift from the KeyBank Foundation to Tri-C is going to go to the community college's Workforce, Community, and Economic Development Division. And and that part of the college offers more than 60 training programs for jobs in high demand fields. And and so this money is really going to go to bolster that program and, and, and try and expand access to such training. Now, when we're talking about students in this kind of training, more than three quarters earn low to moderate incomes currently, and they're looking for a new career. And, and Tri-C says this training will help people find family-sustaining wages. My, my question with anything that promises workforce training always comes back to, do you provide the support services to help people do that? To go take training, if you have kids, you need childcare. To take training, if you're not working, you need some kind of backup to provide for food or for rent. And it's too early to tell, the details are lacking, but it would be nice if some of this $2 million was aimed at helps, helping support people while they're getting the training, because otherwise they can't afford to get the training. 
Yeah, that's a fair point. I don't know how far $2 million would go for such wraparound services, but that, that does seem like a big need. You know, we've heard all sorts of different organizations in Cleveland and Cuyahoga County try and focus on developing the workforce, but that seems like a key piece of the puzzle. You know, on, on, on this end, the details we do have for the Tri-C money, the goal here is to use this money to you know, help recruit more people into the programs, including folks who are underrepresented underrepresented in the industries they're training for, think women in construction or, or something akin to that. And, and it, this money is also going to help make the programs more affordable for students. So I assume it offsets some of the students' costs there and, and also help connect them with actually getting placed into the jobs. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Who is Connie Luta and why are we profiling her as part of Women's History Month? Laura, you get this one because you were tickled by this story. Uh, this is such a great story by Brenda Kane. Connie is 92. She grew up in Painesville in the 1930s, and she was the only child of a father who longed for a son. So she was never forced to take the girly path. She was showered with gifts of baseball bats and electric trains. She got a degree in chemistry. She worked at Standard Oil's Research Laboratory in Warrensville Heights from 1952 to 1968 and developed tests for petroleum products, often sent to the refineries to teach mail workers how to work better, paid $15 an hour less than her male counterparts. I mean, we're talking the 50s and 60s. That's a lot of money. But her Biggest accomplishments was in flying planes. She learned at the age of 31 in Casement Airport in Painesville and began flying. She ended up flying in powder puff derby races, which are all female coast to coast races. She flew with her best friend and co-pilot Patricia Collier. Together, they flew in 10 powder puff races, including one where they were both pregnant and she was seven months pregnant. Her, her obstetrician said, Apparently, he was also a pilot, and he said he trusted her to fly a race more than he would trust her on a commercial flight. But, wow, I mean, it's a great story. She's so optimistic and just has so many good stories to tell. So what exactly would the girly path be if her dad had pushed her down it? Well, probably getting married and having kids and <laughs> not having a career or flying a plane by herself. Uh, one of the most entertaining anecdotes she offered was that they were trying to lighten the load of the plane during these derby races. And so they didn't want regular clothes. So Scott Paper Company, which I think I think of toilet paper, they were making a line of paper clothing as an advertising gimmick. So they wore that, but they would sweat when they were in the cockpit and then their, their outfits would melt. And there was so much press and photographers at these events that they had to like get clothing and change really quickly in the plane before they could get out. So I thought that was really entertaining. Their best finish was third in some of these races. They had 50 to 100 teams. She also flew in intercontinental races known as Angel Derbies. And she still owns um, an air park right now. It's uncontrolled, so no one rans, mans the radio anymore. But she's 92 years old. Isn't that one of the standard nightmares people talk about where their clothes just melt away and they're <laughs> walking around unclothed? It's that, on uh, display at the, the Women in Air and Space Museum at, at Burke Lakefront Airport. So she helped develop that museum as well. So really cool good story. story. Check it out. It's on cleveland.com. That's it for today's episode of Today in Ohio. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Courtney. And thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs>